You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're in the book of Philippians once again, and chapter 2, and we'll be covering portions of verses 17 through 24. Now last time we looked at this text, we discovered a very difficult mandate that the Lord gave through Paul. We're going to examine that in light of the present text. But let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for your grace for each day. And Lord, we lift you up this morning in your word. And we thank you for your grace for each day. We want to lift up those who have been afflicted and are suffering in our body. And we just pray, Father, for your grace abundantly to be poured out on these individuals. We take a gene this morning and several others that are going through great difficulty, and Father, we just lift him up and pray that you administer to them physically and spiritually, and we just thank you. We ask that you guide us in your word this morning, and most of all, that we'd be able to uh, bring glory to you through the believing and acting upon your word as you empower us to do so. We just thank you and ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So when Paul told us that we should do everything without grumbling and complaining, perhaps that can be a difficult imperative to carry out. I know it is for me at times, and perhaps most of us find it easier to read that text than it is to obey it. And yet, we have to recognize this portion of scripture that Paul is addressing here. He is speaking to Christians in understanding how to live out the Christian life, the sanctification process. He's talking to those that already have been justified and God working in them in the process of their sanctification. So as we consider this, we need to understand that Christians need to pursue and faithfully pursue living out God's mandates through God's word and empowered by the spirit. Now, we know that Paul gave us a great encouragement, exhortation in verses 12 and 13. And I want to refer back to that simply because that is the essence of understanding this process of sanctification. So then, my brother, beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we consider that, we recognize that we aren't trying to accomplish Christian works in our own power, nor are we trying to live 
the Christian life in our own power and strength. It's an impossibility to do so. But when God tells us that it's he that works in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, we know the power source. God works in and through us by his Holy Spirit and through his word. So Paul wanted to encourage these Philippians. Recall once again, even though these Philippians lived in the portion of the Roman Empire, a city full of corruption, full of darkness, Paul wanted them to live as lights for Jesus Christ. He wanted them to exalt the Lord in their lives. Now, a society like that, which had political corruption, the emperor and the senate were corrupt, they were immoral, and the whole essence of the empire was living in darkness, with the exception of those that God had touched with the gospel. Now, we can't understand a society like that because we don't always see political chaos or corruption or immorality. Being facetious here, our country faces the same parallel as did the Roman Empire. We look at our world today. We look at where God has placed us in this world, and God wants us to do everything without grumbling and complaining or looking to the world as our standard. God wants us to be set apart in this world. He wants us to show Christ's love and exalt his name in a world of darkness. Before we begin, we will look at the passage, uh, verses 17 through the end, and I'll read the text. Beginning with verse 17 in chapter 2. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me for the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him to you immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So as we look at this, Paul is anticipating, once again, being released and being able to enjoy the fellowship of the Philippian believers face to face. Now notice, Paul never mentions that he's concerned of what the emperor is going to do. The emperor would just as soon kill Paul or have him killed than consider to release him. Paul's concern and his understanding is he knows if Christ wants him to serve him further in this world that 
he can trust himself fully to the Lord, apart from considering what the emperor may do, knowing God's sovereignty over man. <clears throat> so I want to give us a, just an overview of this text. Now we're going to look at it expositionally, but normally we go into great detail. But this text is both doctrinal and narrative. So we have a complex mix here, and yet the passage holds together. And I want to accomplish the task of trying to bring in as much of this context as we can. Paul says this in verse 17. I want to give us just a view of what he was thinking. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. In the first half of chapter 2, Paul's been giving us doctrine about the incarnation and the nature of the Christian life and how God works that in us and through us. And he's called these believers to understand that we're to live in obedience to God's word by the power of the Spirit. Now, knowing in the following verses, Paul turns to some personal matters. Does Paul perhaps bring his life to a place? Well, here I'm speaking as a Christian, but here this is what practically is going on. <clears throat> Does Paul separate himself from the doctrinal teachings? Not at all. <clears throat> Paul here is completely doctrinal. He is going to explain his desires, and yet those desires are completely fitting with the previous text. So Paul turns to personal matters and talks about himself. He's hoping that he'll be able to send Timothy and recognizing that Timothy is a faithful man He'll give a first-hand report, and he's proposing also to send Epaphroditus back. And that would be immediately in this text. It's probable that Epaphroditus was the carrier of this letter back to the Philippians. So Paul is hoping to be released, and yet he wants Timothy to be sent back along with Epaphroditus. It's probable that Timoth or Epaphroditus at this point was healed up enough that he could make the return journey. We're going to look in depth next time a little bit about the character of Epaphroditus. But here, Paul is ready to have Timothy be sent back. And he's talking about the ordinary things in life visits and illnesses and it seems like a break from this doctrinal depth that he plummeted to in the earlier text. He lifts up the incarnation and resurrection of Christ and then from that portion of the text he goes right into some very practical matters and yet all be done under the understanding of the doctrine of carrying out this sanctifying process in Christ. Paul can't write about anything that really isn't contained some application to doctrine or doctrine. He doesn't compartmentalize his life. Paul 
we can understand that you cannot study this section without seeing that. In verse 19, he says, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly, so they may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Then verse 24, he says, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. The Christian life is a controlled life. It's not out of control. We look around and we see a world out of control. But we understand our lives are under God's sovereign control. So it is a controlled life. It's ordered life. The Christian life is controlled completely under the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we make a lot of decisions in our lives daily, sometimes moment by moment. But ultimately, our decisions should be based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. It should be dominated by him. And recognizing God's sovereignty and control of our lives, there's no room for a doctrinal dichotomy. We shouldn't be saying, well, this is a simple matter of a choice that I need to make. Everything that we do in this life should be considered in prayerful and thoughtful process and carried out in an orderly way. Paul gives a wonderful description of a Christian man. He says, you're children of God, and as children, you must remember your relationship to him in all your conduct, in your relationships to the outside world. You can't work out your salvation with fear and trembling and then say, well, now I've got to do this. I know this as a man. I have to carry this out, and I'll just take this path. Paul is saying, we understand how God desires us to live based on his word. In Philippians 17 and 18, we uh, have Paul saying something very unique. He said, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, clearly, this is showing Paul's heart, his love for the saints, his desire to see them grow in Christ, and his heart and compassion as an apostle. In our passage this morning, though we may not get completely through it, there, he presents three men whose lives are great examples of godly living. We have Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. These men all in Rome at the same time. Paul was in his own rented quarters. He was chained to a praetorian guard at times, but was still able to minister. Think of his condition and think how Paul continued to minister. We're all under constraints of some kind, time constraints, physical constraints, whatever it may be, we're not constrained to minister. We can pray, we can serve God, in whatever circumstance that we're in. <clears throat> There's nothing that characterized Paul's life more than the ministry and the service of the gospel. His love for the saints, his love for the unsaved, his love for his Jewish brethren, all manifested in his ministry. The key 
drive in his life was to carry out the gospel, to live out the gospel, and to bring glory to Christ. That was Paul's driving force. He wanted nothing more. For me to live as Christ, that's Paul's desire. Also should be our desire. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. In the context of that, Paul is referring to a letter that he had written, written and he had dealt with in the first book some sinful behavior in part of the Corinthians, which was well depicted and uh, given to us through the teachings that Cornell has been bringing in Sunday school. So we know that the Corinthians had some wayward brothers that needed to be addressed. There needed to be correction, reproof, and restoration. And some were even put out. <clears throat> he wasn't being prideful or presumptuous about his love. Nor when he pointed to himself to follow me as I follow Christ. He knew that he had a life guided and directed and lived by the power of the Spirit. So whenever he pointed to himself, it wasn't for his glory. It was for the glory of Christ. Paul was a humble man. He wasn't proud. And yet, if we pull this out of context, we look at that and say, well, how could he say, follow me as I follow Christ? Look at the living example that he was. Did he fail? Yes. Did he repent? Yes. Did he continue? Yes. Everything that Paul did in his life that was for the purposes of bringing forth the gospel and serving Christ once he was saved was lived to God's glory by God's grace. We all fail, and Paul expressed that clearly in Romans 7 and various texts, even in Timothy. He spoke about his weakness. In Corinthians, he spoke about his poor speech and his frailty. And yet, we have a man of God who was characteristically, physically at this point in his life, not a strong man, but he was his strength and power was in Christ. He lived and trusted in Christ, even so much so that he was considering himself to be poured out like a drink offering. Now, Jim uh, mentioned this, I believe, last Sunday when he was started in Hebrews about the drink offering. This is where they would make animal sacrifices and they would uh, bring forth, put the animal sacrifice and burn the animal sacrifice for the aromic uh, aroma that would be sent up as a sacrifice to the Lord. The libation or the pouring out of the drink offering was poured, taking the precious wine and poured upon that sacrifice, and it would bring a vapor. Now, I wanted to get a clear understanding of this practice in the way they might cook today. So I consulted with a, a man who is an expert in that field, Jesse Keller, and I called him and I said, Jesse, what is it like when you, uh, and I explained the text here, and explained the Old Testament practice of the drink offering, and I said, what, do you ever cook with using a wine? He said, yes, we do. We sometimes will have a meat, and in order to bring a greater flavor to it, you pour wine on it, and it vaporizes, but it glazes. 
that portion of meat. And it also sweetens it. And I said, is there an aroma that comes up? And he said, oh, yes. It's a sweet aroma. And it, it permeates. It's pungent. And it permeates the kitchen with this sweet smell. But this uh, glazing that it does produces a sweetness of the meat. And so I said, well, what happens if you use something that was sour? And he said it would put a horrible odor. He said, whenever I use this, I do so with a good wine, and it just turns to vapor, and yet it gives a candied effect to the meat to bring out the sweetness of the flavoring. So it gives us a picture here. They're using an expensive wine, and they're pouring it on this sacrifice, and it's a vapor. This vapor is pictured in this offering as going up to the Lord as a sweet aroma to him. And this was an Old Testament practice that the priest would do to offer sacrifices for the sins of the Israelites and for themselves. So this practice was carried out, and we can find the as aspect of that in Exodus uh, 29, verse 40, of what the command was to this. They would pour a hen which is a quantity of wine. It's actually four to six gallons on a large sacrifice. But then that would be broken down the smaller the sacrifice that was offered up. But that was the directive in the Old Testament law. This was a ceremonial law and a ceremonial practice. <clears throat> the best of Paul's life is being offered to the Lord as a sweet aroma. He's serving him in whatever capacity he's in, whatever condition he's in. It is offered up to God. He gave himself sacrificially to serve God and to reach the lost. He knew that God had called him to bring the good news to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He poured out his life to God, just like the Old Testament drink offering. And he Speaking here, it's not speaking of martyrdom. Paul isn't talking about, well, I'm giving my body. He gave the instruction of giving our bodies as a living sacrifice in Romans 12. But he's not talking about a physical death or martyrdom here. He's talking about living out the gospel in suffering at times and yet in service to God. This drink offering was also made on behalf of the Philippian believers, this service that Paul was doing. He said, sacrifice in service of the faith in the previous verse. He spoke that their service of faith was greater than being poured up as a sacrifice. The Philippians were partnered with Paul in this service. Even though he was in a hostile pagan culture, and they lived a hostile pagan culture. They were living in the midst of darkness. And Paul is exhorting them to be living as lights for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the more the church grew in Rome, in this little church in Philippi, the more they were persecuted. It was a threat to the Roman leaders to see these Christians living not fear, but living lives that were set apart from their culture, 
They feared what they may do or threaten them somehow politically or power, powerfully. So they wanted to start, they started persecuting these Christians later on. And Paul here recognizes the society. He understands completely the Roman society. He understands what they're going through. He himself has experienced much suffering throughout his missionary journeys, and yet he's exalting them. He's not talking about fearing anybody, but to live for Christ. In Philippians 2, 19 through 24, he begins by saying, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit whom will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Now, how could Paul say that? That would just be like me saying, well, I'm going to send so-and-so. He's the only one that's of like-mindedness with me. And you can trust him when there's a whole congregation of saints that we can entrust to carry out God's word. Paul wasn't isolating Timothy and saying that, well, this is the only man you should trust. There was a reason that Paul used Timothy. What might that reason be? Let's examine it. Timothy was a native of, List, a native of Lystra in the province of Galatia, which is part of the modern Turkey. His mother, Eunice, was Jewish. His father was Greek and probably a pagan. Paul led Timothy to Christ. That's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 4.17, 1 Timothy 1.2. Probably one of Paul's first missionary journeys when he visited Lystra, Acts 14, chapter 6. Both his mother and grandmother, Lois, were believers. Along with his spiritual maturity, combined with his Jewish and Greek heritage, this qualified Timothy to minister the gospel with Paul to the Gentiles as well. To make him more acceptable to the Jews, especially of Galatia, Paul circumcised Timothy. That was uh, recorded in Acts 16. By the time he wrote Philippians, Timothy had been a faithful companion for about 10 years with Paul. Timmy, Timothy was faithful and dependable and qualified to be an example to these Philippian saints. They were probably acquainted with Timothy since he was probably there when the church was founded in Acts 16. Paul was eager to send Timothy to them shortly. What did he mean by shortly? Now, some commentators believe that Paul wanted to learn whether he would remain in prison or be released or possibly executed. But in verse 24, he says, as soon as I see how things go with me, and trust the Lord that my I will become myself shortly, indicate that he thought that he was going to be released. He didn't know for certain. God did not give him some special revelation. He was praying that that would happen, and he was hopeful that that would happen. <clears throat> so Paul wanted to send Timothy so he could be encouraged by Timothy's report about the Philippian church, despite his hope to visit them shortly. Paul expected Timothy would have time to reach them and report back about the church 
And in the case of the Corinth church, his concerns were so deep that he had even no heart for ministry. Uh, I mention this only because Paul's love for the church and the believers is so strong that even in this text in Corinthians, and you don't have to turn there, but you can if you wish. Let's just look at it. Second Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to illustrate Paul's strong love for the saints. Second Corinthians, <coughs> excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. Let's just take a brief look at that text. <clears throat> for even when we came unto Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, that's an important thing to remember, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted, he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow only for a while. Paul here was offering correction and reproof to the Corinthians, and he's referring to that letter. And yet he had sorrow because they had sorrow. And yet that sorrow produced repentance. It wasn't worldly sorrow. It was a godly sorrow. So Paul was just pointing to that incident when, which he had to write a letter and reproving these saints for their wicked behavior and reproving them and correcting them and instructing a way of righteousness. So Paul even felt bad because they were sorrowful and yet he didn't feel bad because it, he knew that ultimately that would glorify God. This gives us a picture of Paul's heart here. As we consider Timothy, he was of a kindred spirit with Paul. He was also a faithful, faithful servant. He had been instructed in the scriptures from childhood by his mother and his grandmother. Paul discipled him as they traveled together. Think about that. Paul discipling Timothy one-on-one. -on -one. Not only giving him understanding of God's word, but also living that out before Timothy. He was discipling this man. Discipleship. Do we still practice that today as part of the gospel? Do we just want to give somebody the gospel and then pray for their salvation? Or when we see a young convert or one who professes Christ, do we come alongside? Nurturing them in the word and bring them forth in truth. Allowing God to work in their hearts and take him through their trials. And all while walking with God and imparting truth. Discipleship is key. We need to remember that's part of the proclamation of the gospel is then discipling them in all things. That was part of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Timothy <clears throat> was faithful and dependable. He was qualified to be an example to the Philippian believers. Paul wanted to send Timothy so that he could be encouraged. Now, there's several characteristics about Timothy that is lifted out in 
these texts. Timothy was a true kindred spirit. He was a faithful servant, and Paul and few others were servants. But Timothy stood out. He had been instructed in the scriptures since he was a child. Paul discipled him as they traveled together. And today, as we look at this example, we can follow Paul's example of this discipleship. The goal of true discipleship is the reproduction of Christ in a believer's life, that they may go out and be an effective minister of the gospel. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to say this, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach you everywhere in every church. That was in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, 17. Timothy also had the virtue of being sympathetic. Perhaps he had the gift of mercy, but he was able to sympathize and understand when a person was going through suffering. He could identify with them and he could minister to them. That was a great quality that Timothy had. He had the heart of a true pastoral servant. The word concerned for here uh, mainly is the strong feeling when you talk about being sympathetic strong feeling and a concern for somebody's welfare. Just as Paul was, any true shepherd should have compassion on a sheep. And I say shepherd, meaning under shepherd, under Christ. Those that are shepherding the flock. Timothy had a pure motive while preaching the gospel with Paul. He was contrasted by many leaders who were seeking their own interests not those of Christ. Many in Paul's day were self-centered, prideful, and they just wanted the church to serve them rather than them serving Christ. They wanted to exalt themselves, not exalt Christ. Paul dealt with many of those who were false teachers. Despite Paul's presence, many preachers had become worldly and self-centered. Excuse me, they may not have been heretical, but they had left their first love. Their primary interests were not those of Christ, but themselves. Another quality in Timothy, as they had proven worth. The Philippians knew Timothy, so they knew him from a youth. He was proven, which has the basic mean of being tested. He had proven character. When you consider somebody for a formal work of service in the body of Christ. You look at their character. You look at their example. You look at their walk. You examine them. The Philippian saints had an opportunity to see that firsthand in Timothy. Paul knew it quite well because he took Timothy with him on his missionary journey. So he he knew that He had virtue in that way, and he had proven worth. He had pure motives for preaching the gospel. He had proven worth, and he had given faithful service to the Lord. Paul was reminding them of this submissiveness 
in this service of selflessness that Timothy offered. He was not speaking here of Timothy's personal service, but also as he served Paul in the process. He helped Paul. He helped Paul physically, and he was always with Paul to try to meet any potential needs that Paul may have had. He also had a willingness to serve faithfully. But this willingness continued because he had a desire to spread the gospel. He put aside his personal plans, his personal goals, that he may have had any trouble with Paul at great suffering and sacrifice. Like Paul, he was also imprisoned for his faith. There's no evidence in Scripture that he ever had been married or had children. And yet, the final thing that Paul alludes to is that he was also available to help. He was selfless in that manner. He, if he was needed, he went. He served. Many of you in this congregation do that without even thinking. And it is truly uh, edifying and encouraging to see the saints give of themselves and not ask for anything in return, but quietly behind the scenes serving the Lord. <clears throat> Paul then added, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. He wanted to visit them, but was also confident in Timothy. Timothy was young, and yet, Paul, remember, instructed them, don't despise his youth. So when we have a young saint that is dedicated to Christ and serving Christ, we examine that. And it's not based on their youth, but on what God does in and through them. Paul goes on to say, he counseled Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, continuing the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing who you have learned them from. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, correct, exhort with great patience and instructions. Be sober in all things, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This should be an encouragement to all of us. These words that were imparted to Timothy. Timothy was faithful, and yet Paul wasn't excluding the faithful saints that surrounded him. He wasn't excluding Epaphroditus. He wasn't saying to anybody specifically in Philippi that, I don't see this faithfulness in you. But he entrusted this work to Timothy because he had already proven himself. Now, we know that Timothy, at different points in his service, ministered as a shepherd, under shepherd. And we know of his maturity because Paul points it out at different levels in different portions of Scripture. And yet we see this gospel lived out in Timothy in such a way that Paul could completely trust him. He knew that he didn't have to instruct him further. He just said, you need to go to Philippi. Timothy was ready to serve and went to serve. And so Paul entrusted that fully to him. Now, as we consider 
I can't see the time. Okay, thank you. We've seen Paul and Timothy as faithful servants of the gospel. Now we're going to look at another servant <clears throat> the next time we get together here in Philippians. We're going to consider Epaphroditus. Now there's not a whole lot of scriptural revelation about him, but what we can find out of Epaphroditus is quite illuminating and it's encouraging to us to see how God worked in him. Who was Epaphroditus? He was a Greek. His name means lovely or favored by Epaphrodite. It was a Greek name. Actually, it was a very common name. He'd been <clears throat> Jews had adopted the practice of naming their children with Greek names, and Christians did as well. <clears throat> they also used Greek names for their children. There's no rec any kind of a record of an outstanding work that he accomplished. We know nothing of his personal background or actually of his conversion or specific function in Philippi. Now, some have referred to him as a leader. We don't know that Epaphroditus was a pastor, but he was sent with a gift offering from Philippi to, Paul, to Rome for Paul. So it may be that he had formerly been recognized as a deacon, carrying out that role of service. So we'll examine this closer when we uh, gather next time in this book of Philippians. And it may be interchanged, I'm sure, of course, with Cornell's teaching. So as we close, I want you to just consider these examples of complete servitude to the Lord for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. These examples were given to us not just to have a historical narrative about what happened in the New Testament early church, first century church, but God wants to edify us, to encourage us, and give us historical examples of those who lived for Christ, suffered for Christ, even died for the sake of the gospel. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to do your will. And we thank you, Father, for the grace that you have extended to us unto salvation. We ask, Father, that you would, as we continue our worship service, that you'd be glorified through our singing of songs and hymns and that you would be glorified once again through the proclamation of your word. May you be glorified and may the saints be edified as you work in through us. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name, to his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.